0: Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. And just a heads up, in today's episode, we discuss some rather heavy and potentially triggering subjects uh, related to mental illness and abuse. So we thought we'd just give you the heads up now. There are resources in the show notes. Thank you. How good is Australia? this fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms bloom, as far i can see. But I ain't spending any time on it. Oh, yeah. go, give me my belly. Don't stop wearing the Speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Batuta Advocates podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of federal politics.
1: It's called being...
0: Well, in a couple of days' time, Australians will head to the polls to decide their future. And today's episode of the Batuta Advocates Decode podcast will be the last interview we publish before that date. My name is Clancy Overall, editor of the Batuta Advocate, and I'm joined by Errol Parker, editor at large.
2: How are you, Errol? Are you sick of this shit yet? No, Clancy, I think that's a wrong attitude to have in these dying days of the election campaign, because this is when the politically uninvested start to open their ears and eyes to the messaging that each party is putting forward. The televised debates are over, and now it's time for just some raw, old-fashioned campaigning, something that both leaders need to keep in mind.
0: That is true, and uh, either way, this hideous news cycle will come to an end one way or another this weekend. Providing it isn't a hung parliament, because if that's the case, we might not ever hear the end of this shit.
2: But a hung parliament, though, is not the worst outcome. I mean, Bob Catter got his first dam, and in the interests of uh, democracy, I'd say it's probably the best outcome. Well, that certainly is a sentiment shared by many
0: people in Western Queensland.
2: Now, back to today's episode. Throughout
0: this uh, federal election podcast series, we've tried to remain as you know, uh, balanced and uh, impartial as possible. We've interviewed both sides of the political spectrum, from David Littleproud, the Ag Minister, to Murray Watt, the Shadow Minister for Emergencies. We've uh, interviewed independents like Allegra Spender, David Pocock, Rebecca Sharkey. We've even interviewed the Torres Strait Islander incarnation of Bob Catter in the shape of Rod Jensen, the KAP candidate for Leichhardt up there
2: on the tip. Yes, we've certainly cast a wide net. That's to avoid accusations of taking funding from any political organisations or billionaires with vested interests, which we've never done, and we never will, and we'll leave that to the good people at Sky News. But if you're listening, Walshy, wouldn't mind a little cash injection or a piece of timeless art.
0: Yeah, yeah, home's of court, home's of court. You know, those checks are still blank. Give us a call. Anyway, unfortunately, uh, things rarely go to plan when it comes to trying to remain balanced and provide, you know, um, fair and authentic news Rivals the authenticity of the salt on the sunburnt dirt that surrounds us here in the Western Queensland Channel country. It's hard in the Outback Journalism game. We always wanted to finish strong with the final two episodes by interviewing a front frontbencher from both of the major parties. Last week we had Chris Bowen MP, Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Renewable Energy. And this week we had hope to get the Federal Treasurer Josh Frydenberg on. Unfortunately, that fell through because Josh is currently in the fight of his life to save his job from an independent challenger in the shape of Professor
2: Monique Ryan down there in Kuyong. Yes, we then reached out to a range of other Liberals, but it seems the memo has gotten around that the Morrison government, to avoid any unnecessary media attention, kind of uh, left us on scene. We couldn't even get a moderate backbencher like uh, your Jason Polinskis or even your Dave Sharmas. But, you know, with the greatest respect... We might as well take off one of your shoes, Clancy. You need to view that because I'd say our many millions of listeners would probably get more out of it.
0: Yes, we um we don't feel like the fact that we weren't able to finish with Freidenberg makes us lefties, though, because earlier in the campaign we interviewed Nats and Libs. So go back and listen to that if you want. Shout out to Senator James Hume for joining us a few weeks back. You were the only Liberal to put your hand up. Luckily for us, though, today for the last episode. The last episode before the election, we have managed to wrangle an interview with an expert on both policy and politicisation, in the sense that uh, she works on policy and is the victim of politicisation from those she is trying to work with. Anyway, we'll get into all that. I think this introduction has gone on far enough.
2: Yes, Clancy, as per usual, you're dribbling again. Listeners, let me introduce today's guest, friend of the show, Grace Tame. How are
1: you? Oh, look, I am all the better for being on the Batuta podcast with you two legends.
0: Well, thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, no worries. And look, you know, I I think I can do a good Josh Frydenberg impression. Just give me billions of dollars and I will throw them away.
0: (laughs) Okay, off to a good start here. Where are you dialing in from today, Grace? Hobart. Hobart. Lime of the Brave, how are your Strava splits looking nowadays?
1: My Strava splits are non-existent uh, on account of on the 1st of February, I was riding my bike, which I was doing in the interim from recovering from uh, some bone injuries. And then, of course, (laughs) I came off my bike and I broke my collarbone. So I haven't been really able to do very much at all. But, you know, things could be worse. I didn't suffer any kind of brain injuries that I know of.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, I thought it was more or less to do with the fact that the sun goes down on the 8th of May in Hobart and comes up again on the 29th of August, is what we're led to believe here in Western Queensland.
1: (laughs) Ah, yeah, look, whatever.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Bit of Hobart sledging to get us going. Now, Grace, has the 2022 federal election campaign just... Has it been as fun for you as it has been for the rest of us?
1: Fun, yeah. Oh, gosh. You know, I'm at once surprised and not surprised the depths to which this particular lot are prepared to sink. It never ceases to amaze me. And it's got nothing to do with party politics. I hope that Australia is realising that now. It's everything to do with human decency, basic human decency, really. It's interesting... There are a lot of parallels between this government and the Trump government. Mm-hmm. I was living in the US and was there for at least the first half of Trump's term. And you guys would be familiar with, or, or I assume you would be familiar with, wrecking crew politics or that theory of of leadership. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. We are. Do you want to explain it for the listeners?
1: Oh well, it's really just abandonment of the people to the extent that there's a an increasing privatization of services. I mean, to cut a long story short, what the ultimate upshot of that is a complete deterioration of the middle class. And really what happens is the rich get richer and the poor get poorer to a really, really awful extent.
2: Well, yeah, it sounds a lot like what's uh, happening here in Batuta with Mayor Keith Carton. I think he's a bit of a wrecking ball. Yeah, absolutely. And what you're describing there, Grace, it's
0: happening in councils and governments right around Australia. The idea of painting yourselves in government and government, whether it's you or your opposition, painting yourselves as useless in the eyes of the voter so that they tend to lose faith in the system itself.
1: It's deliberate abandonment and neglect. It's Mm -hmm. very calculated. And it's quite insidious as well. So this persecution of minorities, you know, and the deliberate sacrificing, I suppose, of Waringa through the scapegoating of Catherine Deves is a political tactic mm-hmm. that has a sort of broader design to it. And that is to appeal to the morals of people who have an ideology that reflects Scott Morrison's own. Mm-hmm. And it's really quite sad. And I think Perhaps what Scott has forgotten, you know, in the fog of his Canberra hive mind, perhaps, is (laughs) is that throughout his tenure, he has thrown a very high number of minorities under the bus, and that it isn't just a game to people and the public, it is our real lives. And, you know, he might be semi-detached from, if not completely detached from it all, up there but out here we don't forget Mm -hmm. and it's starting to add up now and you know who's going to be the prime minister for all these minorities you know because in reality the trans community are Australians you know and the trans youth they are our future children are our future who are the voices of those people who are the leaders of those people if not you know our prime minister and you know women and the disabled community who he sort of outed himself as, as sort of above, yeah. you know, and that was what that comment was about. And I don't think perhaps that take wasn't explored, you know, because people were like, oh, you didn't mean it. And it's like, well, of course it wasn't that it was planned. You know, somebody from the audience asked that question. But in that moment, what was revealed was that that comment came from a person who sees people who are different to him in some way as being, you know, lesser than or, or, you know, and it's become quite obvious now there are lots of different people who he's been prepared to sacrifice. Unfortunately, there are people in society who believe they are entitled to discard others who either challenge their power, who challenge their ideology.
2: Just an inconvenience to them. Or people who were never going to vote for him anyway.
1: Yeah, or who persecute minorities, to bully even allies, to backstab friends, like... One of those people is the prime minister.
0: It's interesting you say that they're adding up because I've had to think about this just while you're talking now. And it's kind of, it was one thing to scapegoat the Muslim community heading into an election, but now we're learning that he also scapegoats the Christian Arabs into being Muslims, like he did there with Michael Toke down there for the pre selection. And I guess what you're saying is that's fine. He can get away with that because the Maronite Lebanese don't represent that much of the voting population but they know what he's done to them and the Lebanese Muslims know what he's done to them. Now, the trans community knows how he feels about them and I guess the disability community also know that he feels blessed to not be one of them. Do you think he's trodden on enough people to kind of feel that at the polls?
1: Yeah, I think you can't put it down to now a bias. You know, and this is what I sort of was trying to point out very early on. Mm. It's not about me i don't really like politics in general oddly enough i'm here to be an advocate of the survivor community i'm not i can't speak for all survivors there are many survivors who won't see themselves in me that are very different to me you know it's a it's a very diverse community we're just human beings Mm -hmm. you know like any cohort you're going to get differences of opinion within that community because again just a human and The stats are one in five. It's one in six boys and one in four girls that is abused before they're 18. Mm -hmm. You know, and my trajectory is pretty rare. It's a a gift to be heard and it's not one that I take lightly. And I know that I make mistakes, you know, and I'm just learning. I didn't go to uni. I don't know all the correct terminology. and, And sometimes, you know, like I say things that, again, I don't intend to Get wrong but invariably i will stumble and that's okay you know i'm human and i'm prepared to keep an open mind and listen and be you know corrected along the way and you sort of take people along the journey but it's not about party politics at the end of the day there are great representatives of the liberal party you know the new south wales treasurer came out and said there's no place for this bigotry in mm, yeah. the modern liberal party and and he's he's right there's no place for this bigotry in in the world like you know, there's this misinformation, too, about trans children being mutilated. It's just like you can't get the operation until you turn 18.
0: <laughs> yeah. I want to go back to the wrecking ball politics. We Actually, we've come out of the gate hot on this interview. I really enjoy um, having you on, Grace. Do you think Scott thinks that far ahead? Do you think when he intervened on the New South Wales pre-selections to get a candidate in Warringah, once the safest seat in the entire country, once held by Tony Abbott, he puts someone in there who basically looks like she's trying to get a job on Sky News and just gives a weekly comment about, you know, trans people and, and, you know, talking about things that obviously no one in her electorate's coming up to talk to her about. Do you think he's thinking that far ahead or do you think he is just rolling with a crisis that he has created?
1: Well, the thing is, I don't know what he thinks. Mm. <laughs> I don't really want to. <laughs> what I can say is this this is just my two cents and mm-hmm. I. One of my principles is like, I'm not here to try and force my two cents on anyone. I believe in, you know, encouraging people to always be interrogating their conditioning and present ideas and my thoughts, you know, and again, like I'm not always right about things, but my take on it is that people who are, and I'm going to go right out and say it, Mm -hmm. people who are egocentric like him, or at least that's my
0: experience with him.
1: Well, not I mean, actually. Thankfully, haven't spent that much one-on-one time with him, <laughs> I and mean, I don't hate you because the way that he responded to me, because I called him out, and well, called a spade a spade, was to intimidate me mm-hmm. with you know his resources, which are far greater and more powerful than mine that's how you want to use your resources as prime minister to carry out your petty vindictive vendettas Great. right yeah i hope you feel good about that while the country is in the middle of a pandemic and there are people dying you know in floods and there are still people who don't have their homes after the bushfires good job scott (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) that's what I was saying. But that's what
0: you're saying is he doesn't give a consideration of what people are going through. He doesn't.
1: know. he's so trapped in his ideology, which is somewhat, I would say, distorted in that, you know, he's not unintelligent. He's quite intelligent too. Like, I'll give him that. He's the Prime Minister. No one can be the Prime Minister of a country. No one can be the leader of a country without having intelligence and skills and mastery, at least at manipulation.
0: Grace, this is a remarkably different interview we're having compared to the last time, and I'm going to explain why to the listeners. The last time we had you on, we rocked the boat, just slightly, when you were able to reveal, in the flow of conversation, uh, some charming words that Scott Morrison whispered in your ear after your powerful Twenty Twenty One Australian of the Year speech. That was a one-off. I don't think you wanted to rock the boat. We certainly didn't think after you said that, that that it was going to end up on newspapers all around the country. But it was. But outside of that, you've actually been pretty tight. You know, you've been a tight ship in terms of uh, sharing your political opinions in that role. You took it quite seriously. All you did to earn the title as a lefty sleeper cell was look at him funny that was basically all you gave. And a few comments here and there that slightly criticised his character. But outside of that, you've remained an apolitical kind of advocate for survivors, which is you know, what you were when you first kind of became a household name as a strand of the Year. Can you tell us what it was like to keep your mouth shut? Because you, you did do that. I mean, I know it wasn't a responsibility, but you took that role quite seriously in that it wasn't about taking a baseball bat to Scott Morrison as the Australian of the Year. It was about, you know, advocacy. What was it like to kind of have to bottle a few things up?
1: I don't know that I felt as though I really kept my mouth shut or anything. I didn't feel like I was. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't walking around with, you know, like a ball and chain around my ankle or anything like that. But I certainly opened my eyes up to um, a lot of things, you know, and certainly... Getting to meet Brittany Higgins, as I did in September, and hear her experience firsthand, you know, straight from the horse's mouth, which is what's really important to me because, you know, even the most independent outlets, you know, who have the best intentions you know and it's not all media of course you know and there there are some great outlets true to advocate uh, <laughs> clean as a whistle there's um, the Saturday paper and you know like the shot which I've started writing for but a lot of mainstream media and I mean you just look at the landscape um, it speaks for itself when you hear the numbers you know if you've got Murdoch who owns 59% of the metropolitan and national print media, and then you've got um, nine, which is the next biggest in line, and that's 23%. percent you got a total of 82% there alone, which is, um, you know, pretty right-leaning. Here's what, what? you got Costello, who sits on the board. Is he chair? Or is he, yeah, he's yeah, chairman he's, of the yeah, board. Yeah,
2: he's chairman of the board.
1: Yeah, and Costello was what? Former Liberal Treasurer under Howard? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. There's definitely no bias there. <laughs> oh. No,
0: no, no, no. But what we're saying is it didn't matter what you did. You were going to be painted as some sort of anti-Scomo. Yeah.
1: What's interesting, how about this? If we just, again, this is what it's really about. It's, It's about sitting back and critically thinking about a lot of these things. You know, because I spent, and I know this for a fact... Because I went around the country and I spoke at events. Now, granted, some of them were private, so there couldn't be any media there to report on what I said for a reason because I was talking about my story, which is very traumatic, and I talk about some of my experiences self-harming, not for shock value, but for the purpose of truth because people need to understand what not only happened as a result, but what happened during You know, because he still buys into this narrative of, oh, it was a relationship. It was a consensual relationship between a 15 year old and a 58 year old man who I would go to during the abuse and I would have, you know, cuts up my legs and arms and he would still do things to me, knowing that that was a result of what he was doing to me. It's complete nonsense. Sometimes media wasn't there, but I did plenty of television interviews where I talked in depth about the stages of grooming. In fact, at the National Press Club on the 3rd of March last year, I addressed an entire room of press gallery journalists, and the MC, very politely at the beginning, she said, Please do not ask Grace about the situation in Parliament, because it was then very recently that Brittany Higgins had made her allegations of the rape in Parliament. And this wasn't because I'm not capable of answering any question. It's mainly because what happens when you talk about these very activating subjects, when a human being or an animal is put into their um, amygdala, where trauma resides, They are reduced to an animal. It's fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. That's where you go. You can be a rocket scientist and it won't matter. Logic becomes very hard, if not impossible, to access. So, all these gotcha questions that journalists throw at you, it's really actually quite cruel. It's not that I'm, again, incapable, but, you know, again, it doesn't matter who you are. You just, Reduced to those trauma responses. And then I even in my speech explained this to journalists that, you know, ditch all your trying to get ratings or whatever. Like I remember when I first got my voice back in 2019, I had an earpiece in and I was by myself in a room and I was on, I think it was Studio 10, and Kerry Ann Kennelly. I couldn't even see anything. And Carrie ann Kennelly, after playing a clip that had the pedophile's voice in my ear in an interview with Bettina Arndt, which really activated me, because I don't really like to hear his voice, go figure. She goes, take us back to your darkest moment. And it was like...
0: Fucking Christ.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, was like, it wasn't really pleasant. I was actually um, in the midst of a bout of anorexia at the time. I was really underweight and not very well. Like, I, I held my own... But it was live on national television. You know, it's like a box of chocolates in that moment. You could could get anything. And it's like, yeah, okay, I'm tough. But you could do that to someone and they could break down and cry. Mm. You could do that to a war veteran and they would cry. Like, yeah, sure, I haven't been to war. um, And I'm not comparing myself to someone who's been through that. But, like, I've also been through domestic violence too.
0: These are natural responses. It's
1: not nice, don't do it. I explained in a very conciliatory way too to this room full of journalists, please don't do it. And also the experience of abuse itself is underpinned by an erosion of boundaries, especially as a child. And as someone who had no concept of boundaries from coming from a broken home and suppressing my own needs in order to fawn to one of my abusers before this abuser who I was fawning to as well, it didn't have much of a concept of boundaries and I was just asking for some basic respect and this MC had too and what did every journalist I shit you not every journalist do as soon as I was finished every single one asked me about politics and they had every opportunity to you know raise this issue of grooming on the national stage and they all just wanted in their little insular group to yeah. ask about politics to get their gotcha moment, you know, and it was disrespectful. Yeah, It recreated that dynamic wherein they held all the power and I was beneath them and they weren't aware of it and I was very respectful to them in that I answered their questions but they couldn't see the irony right in front of their eyes.
0: Do you reckon it's always been like that or do you think this is a result of... A kind of uh, news cycle that's treading water and they don't know where the industry's headed or they're going for TikTok moments. That seems to be a feature of the current federal election campaign. Or do you think that's just them? There's the egos and there's a microphone in their hand and they're pointing it at you.
1: No, look, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's not for me to make sort of broad stroke assessments of an industry, which is, you know, in part, you know, you can make assessments of. The industry itself. You can make assessments of journalists themselves. You know, there's lots of ways to sort of unpack it. But I think that the state of Australian journalism is pretty bad. I would say Mm -hmm. the sensationalist journalistic model. It's really awful because you know, once upon a time, journalism was something different. It was just what was supposed to be a, an objective, thing where you transmitted information from one source to another and it was reporting on both good and and tragic events. Now it could be said that the media contributes to them in some ways and there is, you know, like in the case of the Kitching saga, I mean that was a confected saga Mm -hmm. and one that was driven in many ways by the media.
2: Did you feel like there was any pressure to really conform to what the public perceived to be the right way for an Australian of the Year to act? Because like I think a lot of people have this perceived kind of notion that the Australian of the Year should do things like when Robert D. Castella opened the Arana Mall in Dubbo. That's what a lot of people think the Australian of the Year is there to do, is to simply perform a civic <laughs> duty on behalf of the Australian people. Was there any pressure you felt to conform to... You Know this cookie cutter way that people like to think.
1: No, I mean, many things can be true at once. You know, like I'll always be grateful for the opportunities, and and again, like having a platform is a gift. And in many ways, I owe a lot to the Australian of the Year Awards platform. And then at the same time, you know, I could say that, like, I don't think a lot of people realize what um it also has cost me and my family. Mm-hmm. I know because. Again, I didn't ask to be named Australian of the Year or nominated for Australian of the Year. It was something I had really no concept of or very little concept of prior to it all happening. And it happened so in such an accelerated way, you know, and that's sort of a very real reason why trauma is processed over a long period of time. And what happened in, you know, especially in that really concentrated 12 months, and it's still happening now, Yeah, is that, you know, a lifetime of trauma was amplified it was also then scrutinized um you know just relentlessly relentlessly yeah Um, you know so what i what i was saying before is that there was this fantastic opportunity for all of this information that i was giving about pedophilia about you know sexual abuse um of children and particularly about this issue of grooming which i was really trying to bring to the fore you know about how successful predators are at you know, manufacturing this even love um, and fawning mm-hmm. that their victims uh, sort of become possessed into feeling or not even feeling, but possessed into believing that they feel for their abusers. And I was trying to sort of really highlight this. And in, in a lot of ways, there there was some coverage of that, but the media really focused on because it was, you know, and, and who knows to what extent the government is deferential to the media or vice versa. And that's, you know, like, I I don't know, but, you know, it became the mainstream media, especially the Murdoch press, spent, you know, a disproportionate amount of time reporting on this supposed obsession that I have with the Prime Minister, <laughs> whereas in reality I would say that 1% of the talking that I did or the commentary that, that I've done yeah. has been about him. Yeah. Like, I have travelled Australia and I have done delivered you know, 45-minute keynotes followed by half an hour Q&As <laughs> about...
0: <laughs> Everything but him. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I don't really talk about him. <laughs> Jesus. As far as tweeters go, I'm not a serial tweeter who tweets five times a day. I tweet very sporadically. And, you know, sometimes I do memes about hilltop hoods.
0: That was good stuff. I have to interject here and say when you posted that photo of Barnaby's blood nose, for my people in the front, in the nosebleed <laughs> section. That was really good stuff, Grace. I felt bad about
1: that, though. I, then I was like, oh, no, is that mean? And then I was like, it's Barnaby Joyce. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> He can take a knock. He certainly has he on the Matuta yeah. Advocate. Well, look, if there's anyone who can laugh at themselves, <laughs> it's Barnaby. Because if he doesn't have that, then what does he have?
0: <laughs> you are quite a... Um... Some would say a dry comic in many aspects. Um, and that's what you use Twitter for. You're not up there berating the Prime Minister.
2: There is one thing I would like to know is that what was your advice to Dylan as you handed on the baton? Because Dylan doesn't
1: take my advice.
2: He is a person who's spent a lot of his young life in the public eye where when you became the Australian of the year, it was um, the first a lot of people had heard of you. So what was that like?
1: Uh, yeah, it's very bizarre. The opinions that really mean the most to me are the um, the ones of the people that mean the most to me, you know? <laughs> so like Max and my little brother, who's 12, and my mum and my cousins and, you know, like my loved ones, those are the ones. It's about, you know, staying grounded, you know, feet <laughs> on the ground and head out of the clouds and not letting those sorts of things get swept up and you know, rem- remembering your, your own humanity and that we're all just people. You know, I'm just an everyday Australian and it always will be just an everyday Australian. Um, and you know, I'm no different to the person that I was before. I was named Australian of the Year. I am the same, you know, goofy, flawed individual.
0: Coming off bikes in Hobart.
1: Coming off bikes in Hobart <laughs> and I'm no more entitled to anything than anybody else. And that's the problem is, you know, if we want to go back to, you know, Scott Morrison is that his entitlement, you know, like words like, well, I'm the prime minister, you know, and like she should smile at me because I'm the prime minister. Like, pfft. yeah, <laughs> well, and I'm not saying smile at me because I'm the Australian of the year. Yeah. Like. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Imagine Lee Kernighan when he was Australian of the Year demanding people smile at him. (laughs) Grace, I want to kind of talk about that, about your um, mortal sin of not smiling in front of a grown-up, or at least that's how he felt. And just everything around that, the pearl clutching that has happened. Obviously, a lot of it is media-led.
2: Yeah, a lot of it's artificial pearl clutching. I pearl mean.
0: clutching. The same happened, you know, with every little fucking punch they could land on any advocates. The same thing happened with Goodsy, and I'm not comparing the two things, but any slight flaw or anything that they could run with, the media, they would. Do you actually think that translates to the punters? Do you actually think anyone cares about a bong? I certainly don't. I mean, Jesus, I I, I couldn't believe the outrage. Do you think people care as much as we're led to believe the outrage surrounding, you know, the side eye, the photo of the bong from fucking 10 years ago, whenever it was. I mean, you, you get to meet people. You're, you're, you're touring the country. You're probably meeting more people than the Prime Minister will in his incredibly well-controlled campaign. That doesn't translate through.
1: I haven't met a single person who's had the courage to say anything negative to my face. Yeah. Every negative comment that I have received has been online,
0: mm-hmm. um, yeah.
1: I think says something. Yeah, But again, I think it's it's not really about that. Yep. Yeah, it's just interesting. I've had sort of my whole life, I've had, although I'm definitely a stranger to fame in in terms of being the object of it, yep. I'm certainly not a stranger to the object of people's projections. And it, this kind of happened last year as well on a much bigger scale. Like I would wake up some mornings and I'd find my face on the cover of some article that had been written about fourth wave feminism. And I'd be like, I don't even know what second and third wave feminism is, but that's <laughs> really yeah. i flattered. And <laughs> then I'd wake up and there'd be an article like with my face all scrunched up and it'd be something like angry, something, something, something. And I'd yeah. be like, you know, and just none of it was written by people who even knew me, yep. you know, and, and that's okay. And again, my, I focus on the opinions of my loved ones. Yep. But it was just, like, this constant slinging back and forth from people who just had no actual concept of who I was at all. And so this, like, whole smile thing was, like, a to me, or, like, this frown thing was, like, a, a circuit breaker of this culture of just, like, keep upholding the status quo. Yeah. Which are just a crock of shit, yeah. really. And, like, I... I was standing next to Scott Morrison and I'm friends with Brittany and I'm like, I can't smile at you. Like, this is a crock of shit. All these, like, play nice human human institutions that just harbour abusers, you know, and cover it up for the sake of what?
0: Yeah. I mean, do you feel like you're expected to fawn in a sense in those circumstances? I mean, you were behaving how you felt. We were seeing how you felt, and you know you just said then you can't smile.
1: And I think a lot of people don't realise, or they—I mean, perhaps they do—but then, again, are triggered into this fawning because it is a visceral feeling. This fawning, you know, like it's like the difference between like we're we're all happy to. Like, I'm sure we've all done it where we have, we're in the shower and we're practicing what we're going to say to the people that really intimidate us and we're practicing our arguments. You know, we're like getting the shampoo out. We're like, oh, okay, I'm going to say this, I'm going to say that. And then we actually confront those people and they have this visceral effect on us. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden we start, you know, we just want to please them. And that is fawning, yeah. it's guttural.
0: In your advocacy, Grace, you know, every conversation we have, I'm learning a lot. And I guess that's what advocacy is. Not familiar until this. Conversation with the you know the fourth response, which is fawn. I mean, I I had heard freeze before, and obviously, fight or flight's the one that gets trotted around, particularly for uh, young men, where it's presented as something like, "Are you a man or a mouse? Are you going to you know fight or flight?" You know, I'm learning a lot, and uh, Errol is too. How do you have these conversations around policy when you're talking about these things to people who think they know everything, aren't as receptive as? as we are to your advocacy, or uh, aren't it interested?
1: Well, you've got to talk to people. Again, you know, like, it's got to be uh, the right time and place, and you've also got to understand that you can't force people to listen. You've got to go in to any conversation or situation not with this idea that you're going to change people's minds, that it's, you know, it's not a negotiation, and that, you know, it's about compromise, You've got to allow people to present their ideas too and make people feel comfortable and feel heard. One of the things that was fascinating to me was, you know, I I had the great honour, I think we talked about it last time, of um, you know, touring with John Cleese, even though John has completely lost me now with his aligning himself with J.K. Rowling and this anti-trans stuff. I remember having to sort of go off and get supplies and stuff and I got a few Ubers when we were in the Deep South And I remember one of the drivers was a hardcore Trump supporter. Mm -hmm. And I just sort of sat there and I just I listened to him talking about his views and I didn't argue with him or anything, just listened to him, just gave him an ear. And that's a huge part of my job is as much as it is about talking to people and sharing experiences, it's about listening mm-hmm. and, again, giving, making space and sharing the platform and, yeah, allowing people to present their ideas. and.
0: Do you find it works using, you know, these kind of measured tactics in, in talking to and working with people who who you could be chalk and cheese with?
1: Yeah, I mean, you usually find common ground – With any human beings, or most of the time, I think. Yeah, yeah, And if you go in, it's like any situation. If you go in with an attitude, with an open mind, you will get a good outcome most of the time. I mean, there's always going to be situations that don't work out. But it's like if you go up to a snake with a stick and poke it, Mm -hmm. you're probably going to get bitten, you know. So... You know, don't go into policy meetings with a stick yep. uh, is the moral of that story.
0: Yeah. I do want to talk about kind of off the back of what we we're just talking about here. Obviously, Anthony Albanese, you guys have developed a rapport. But it is interesting. You don't let him off scot-free. It hasn't stopped you from keeping the bastard honest. Do you find he is perhaps easier to talk
1: to? Yeah, well, he's more respectful. Yeah. And he's a real... Person.
0: And what would you, what would you, Grace, say to the Australian people in these final days? I mean, I know that's not your job, but you're on a platform that a fair few people listen to. What would you, what would you kind of say?
1: Yeah, again, it's not about party politics. No, it really isn't. Like I said before, people accuse me of being a labour hack all the time, which, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's about principles, you know, and those principles are honesty, authenticity, um, integrity, but also sticking up for the underdog is such a huge part of Australian culture. Mm -hmm. Even if you just do isolate it to this particular example of this, you know, fraudulent hate campaign wherein the prime minister is prepared to sacrifice one of the most discriminated against minorities in you know lgbt youth they're the underdog Mm
2: -hmm. yeah
1: and if he's prepared to sacrifice lgbt youth trans youth in order to maintain power who else is he prepared to sacrifice? Yeah. That is not the Australian way. Nobody gets left behind. Nobody. Yeah. You lead for us. You lead for everyone. Let's just yeah. ask yourself that. Like, yeah. if, you know, I, I can't tell you who to vote for. I can't tell you, I can't tell you what to do. That's, that's, again, that's not my job. But just ask yourself, like, you don't have to sit, like, you don't have to have these people in your home if that's what you're worried about, like... <laughs> Like, if that, ooh, you know, yeah. they're not forcing yeah. their values on you. That's the whole point. These people's freedoms do not compromise your freedoms. Yeah. Even though that's how he's trying to spin it. Yeah. They actually don't. Trans kids, not a lot of them actually want to play sport.
2: Yep. No.
1: That's, that's misinformation too.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Just really think about it.
0: We'll, we'll take it back to the top. We'll finish on with that on the top, you know. Just think about... The different communities that have been trodden on, and now we're seeing in the desperate kind of rattle of this uh, election, it's obviously uh, it's kids.
1: Children are the future. That's who I'm a, you know, a representative of. I'm 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 here for, you know, survivors of of abuse, you know, and and discrimination, and yeah, children are the future.
0: Well, you're doing an incredible job. You're a gem. Thank you for joining us today. Enjoy your sausage sizzle on Saturday, Grace Tame. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> at the that, election that's assuming you haven't already voted yeah. on the pre-polls
2: <laughs> or maybe down in Tassie they just have a candied apple or something I don't know I don't know I've only been there once so, yeah. fairy floss
0: yeah thank you for joining us Grace it's always it's always great to have you and we'll have to catch up when we inevitably go down to um, that museum of necrophilic art um, is that what it's called <laughs> oh might <my goodness.
1: laughs> no, no as well be. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Thank you That's our final episode of Decode Before the 2022 Federal election and it has been uh, Quite an insightful yarn Particularly uh, I'll say so for myself And um, thank you Grace for again Lending your time and Labor To talking to us and our listeners nice. Thank
1: <laughs> Thanks, you Grace. Always a pleasure